Welcome to the Field Notes podcast, where we talk about all things happening with Esri Field Operations. My name is Demaya. And my name is Josh, and we're product writers on the Esri Field Apps team. Hello, and welcome to the Field Notes podcast. Today, we are having an exciting conversation about environmental conservation and the application of GIS and conservation field work. And joining us all the way from New Zealand, we are here with Scott Samble, who is a conservationist and founder of the organization Ethos Conservation. And we are super excited to have him here to talk with us today. So we'll let him go ahead and introduce himself. So Scott, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and the type of work that you do? Yeah, so I am probably best known for being one half of a, a rodent detection dog team. Obviously, I'm not the dog half, I'm the handler half of the team. Um, we go out to all the pest-free islands or potentially pest-free islands all around New Zealand um, to make sure they still don't have those nasty critters out there that are devastating our uh, natives, our endangered and threatened natives um, that we have around the country here. Um, but in doing so, I also um, uh, realised that we need a little bit of uh, GIS work in what we do and started up um, making some spatial systems um, for, first of all, the conservation dogs. Um, and then for other um, people who need them, basically, in the conservation industry here in New Zealand, um, things grew and grew a little bit. And now we have a company called Ethos Environmental that um, provides spatial services, um, does all those GIS tricks that we use in, um, in ArcGIS using the Esri tools. Very cool. So before we get into kind of all that cool stuff you're doing out in the field, um, how did you get into this line of work? What, um, what led you to Ethos Environmental? Yeah, so it's, it's always been a thing that, I that guilt, I think. I think that's why a lot of people get into conservation work. <laughs> it's because of the guilt that you look around yourself and you go, oh my God, things are terrible, aren't look they? Look what I we've done. About it. How did we get here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> look what we've done. And and I was honestly, I was, you know, most of my childhood just racked with guilt. It's like, this, we're really stuffing up the planet, hey? And so then you start, you know, recycling and planting trees and helping in volunteer groups on weekends and just like no focus at all. It's just like, I'm just going to do everything. I'm going to join Sea Shepherd and I'm going to go to Antarctica or something like that. I don't know what I want to do. I'm going to do something. And then I met my wife who's a proper bona fide scientist with a PhD in biology. Um, and she's focused and she knows exactly what needs to be done uh, to right the wrongs, I guess, um, and to alleviate my guilt. Um, and so she's like, well, this is what needs to be done. And we've worked in countries all over the world and every country you go to is like, this is the issue that they have here. This is their problem with the ecosystem. This is what humans have done. And this is what we are going to do to change. And I'm like, wicked, point me in the right direction, tell me where to go. Um, and so we started this company, Ethos Environmental, um, that does that and ended up in New Zealand, where there's a lot of work to do in that, in that field. So you mentioned in the beginning, you had really no focus at all with the type of environmental yeah. work you wanted to do. And so now you work uh, with rodent, catching rodents and I guess eradicating them from New Zealand's environment. So why was that the particular focus that you wanted to, I guess, work on um, within the conservation field? Yeah, so the thing about this, it's just so easy when you get to, I mean, it's, it's a bloody hard job, but it's so easy when you get to New Zealand because it's so black and white. It's just so, because before humans came to New Zealand, um, there were no land-based mammals. Like there were a couple of bats, which are sort of like birds anyway, but there were no nasty things with fur and teeth and claws and that type of stuff. It was just a birdtopia. It was just all these birds just flying around with nothing to eat them. And the birds just stopped learning how to fly they just ended up being ground-based and then wow. humans came along introduced mammals and so when you look at the problem 
okay, how are we going to redress the balance here? How are we going to right our wrongs? We just need to get rid of all the metals. It's just super simple. We worked in so many different places where it's so complex. Um, and in New Zealand, it's like, well, if you get rid of, what's the worst ones? Uh, stoats, possums, rats? Let's get rid of those. And so you can just focus on that and that can be your whole life. And there's, you know, a lot of people, that's what it is. We just have this movement where we're just trying to get rid of the, the worst of the mammalian predators just to give those birds a chance to come back. Definitely. And you've been quite successful so far, right? I believe I saw in one of the videos on your website that there was a, a species thought to be extinct that has now been reintroduced back onto one of the islands. Is that correct? I, I don't know which one you're referring to because we've done it a couple of times now. Okay, okay. But it could be Cook's petrel that you're referring to. That was one of, was that, was it a white fluffy seabird? I think it may have been, yeah. Yeah, I, that was that was my first oh wow we did it moments yeah um, because I, I did we weren't looking for them we were looking for at the time we were on great Barrier Island, and we were looking for the very 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 rare chevron skink um of which at the time we were looking for them there was only 300 in the entire sightings ever in the history of these you know, not 300 individuals only 300 times the skink had ever been seen um, um, so we we're trying to prove that they still exist. And someone came along and found a Cook's petrol chick. And I didn't know what it was because it shouldn't have been there. Wow. And we, we figured out later on that, well, not later on, the penny dropped straight away with the ecologist, you know, who actually found the chick. Um, she's like, well, uh, you know, this is obviously going to happen. There's birds, birds fly, birds go around everywhere. Um, this bird landed in the middle of your project. It didn't get eaten by something. And so, well, these birds, a male and a female, they bred, they had a chick. This chick is healthy and ready to fledge. You've created an environment for a locally extinct species to come back. And now, like this, that was years ago. That was like seven years ago. Um, and they're, they're flourishing. Like there's heaps out there. They have a colony out there. And this was a locally extinct species. A, a pair landed, um, started breeding. Another pair saw that they'd bred. They called out to them. They landed and it kept going, going, going. And all we did, was got rid of the things that were eating them and they came back to life. And that's why, that's why I think, I mean, that's, my wife will kill me for oversimplifying this, but um, that, that's why this just seems so simple to me. Just get rid of the things that are eating them and the, the threatened species will just come back. Definitely. I mean, it's the same thing with, you know, uh, uh, you know, plants too, right? If you have an invasive plant species that is, uh, you know, acting as a, a parasite or something that's intruding upon a local plant species. It's kind of the same thing. I guess I've just never heard it as much with, with mammals. That's exactly right. And so this is what, and I, I'm not a plant person at all. Um, I've spent a lot of time out in the bush trying to sniff out the last rodent and the, you know, the last stoat and the last possum in the forest and that type of stuff. Um, but, you know, it just naturally happened, especially when we started making these, these GIS systems. Um, yeah. People said, well, can you use my plants as well? It's like, yeah, we should focus on plants, should we? Because it's just as a bad thing. So we, you know, these weeds, what we call weed species, just plants from another country, basically, just take over the forest out there. And so we started using the same sort of systems, just, you know, manipulating them so they work for plants. Um, and that's pretty much our, our big thing now is just keeping a tab on the, the mammalian predators and also the plant invasive species as well. Interesting. Do you find plant... I guess, um, conservation work as simple as, I guess, animal conservation work in terms of like simplicity of what you're doing. It's, it's the obvious, the obvious thing there. And I says the plants don't move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it makes it so much easier because if you see a plant, you can go, I'll come back and get that. And you come back a bit later and the plant's still there. It's, I mean, it's grown, it's spread. Sure. But originally that cause, and you know, we use drones for both. 
Um, mm -hmm. And so we've been using drones for plant um, identification for quite a long time. Um, and it's great because it's like, this is the, is the easiest job ever. You fly the drone out there, you make some high resolution auto mosaic, or you, know, you do some kind of uh, analysis on the, on the, um, on the imagery and you say, well, that's where, that's where those plants are. And you go back out there and you, you can treat it by on ground or by the drone, that type of stuff. But very, very just recently, I've just um, started talking to some guys who are spotting possums using their heat signature from the air using drones. Um, and what we're doing is we're going to get that into an ArcGIS system so that they, you know, obviously you're flying along, there's a possum there, you can send that out to field maps, someone could be running out there, you know, chasing the possum. I mean, this is the dream anyway, we're very, very early stages at the moment. But, you know, if we, we can send that signal, we know very fast around everywhere but i keep saying it's like we're gonna be very fast at this that possum's moving like this yeah. you know, we're sending us we're sending a a point to the host of feature service um and that's getting down to the mobile device and that guy's got to be with his dogs and all that but anyway okay. we haven't done this yet but that's that's the next thing is to just really really quick data transfer so we can get moving things rather than you know, going back a week later and getting the plant definitely well, let's keep diving into the GIS of things, shall we? So the goal is right to, to remove these invasive mammals or plant species. How, how is GIS used to do that? And how did you maybe think to first use GIS to help solve these problems? That was quite a story. So um, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. But so it's probably about 10 years ago now. Um, we, as, this, as that same project on Great Barrel Island, just before the Cook's Petrels came back, um, we had a heap of people out in the field. Um, they were going out there with waterproof notepads and pencils, you know, which was just how we used to do it back then. And I was the manager of the project, basically I was the operations manager. Um, and it used to just infuriate me that people would come back with their waterproof notepads and they would just throw them on the desk. I'd say, whose notebook is this? You haven't even written the date in here. What, what is this? Even? I can't read what you've written here. Oh, I lost my pencil. So I didn't do the last few. I was like, oh, guys. And people would lose their books and I couldn't figure out who'd been where and what had done what. And I said, we just need, and I just need this to be spatial because I just don't know where you've been or what line you did and that type of stuff. Everyone's calling. I, we need a system for this. Anyway, so I obviously did some research and figured out I need a, um, you know, a geographical information system. So I read up on this and figured out what the hell it was. And of course, I wasn't happy just to have, you know, just put something on Google Earth or something like this. I wanted the best that you could possibly get. Um, and so obviously a little bit of research later, you find out that, you know, Esri makes the best, biggest stuff in the world. Um, found out who distributed the products in New Zealand, which um, is Eagle Technology here. Um, a guy called Parker Jones was working for them at the time. Um, we got together and he said, yeah, 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 I really want to get this into the hands of conservation groups. Um, and so him and I did a bit of scheming and um, he ended up getting us back then ArcMap. Um, so we could put all the dots, all the traps and all the bait stations all over the map. Um, and uh, he just said, look, if you can figure out how to use it, then you can have it you know, for a very small fee not the usual standard uh, price that, it, you know, retail price, because we're doing it for the good of conservation and everyone knows we don't have any money. So that's how we started. And anyway, it, it worked really, really well. Other people started seeing what we were doing. Um, and uh, we started a little organization called GIS in Conservation, which just helps conservation groups get these tools in their hands and teaches them how to use it. Um, so th that's pretty much how we started doing it. But then you guys just kept making the tools better and better and better. And we went, oh, have that as well, have that as well. And then, you know, when Arctis Online happened, we went, that's it. That's what we want. Um, collector, 
And then we were just pushing it and pushing it, and pushing it until we said, well, you know, we need something better than collector. Then field maps came out. It's like, that's what we want. That's the thing. Um, and then integrating all the apps together. And it's just been an obsession ever since, basically. Do you find yourself using different Esri field apps in different situations and for different workflows? Yes. I, th I think, you know, coming back to field maps again, I mean, that was such a game changer for us because we were launching Survey123 from Collector and launching Quick Capture from Collector and trying to make things in um, in App Studio as well because it just, you know, it just wasn't working. We needed one app to rule them all. So we'd make something in App Studio that would do everything. And it was just so a bit all over the place. Um, we use all of the tools. Actually, there's only one we haven't used, which is um, the, the mission one. Um, for some reason, I've never used that one. But the rest of them, yeah, pretty much every time you guys bring something out, um, we'll jump into it. And every single job is different. That's what's very cool about this, is that although it might involve that, okay, I'm going out and checking traps to try and keep these you know, rats under control, for example. I might have a dog with me, and so I need to track what that dog is doing. So I've got a feature service in there for... Um, entering what the dog is indicating as well, whether it's sniffing something out or whether it's trying to climb a tree or trying to dig a hole or you know, which species we think it's after. And while I'm there, I might be collecting plant data as well. And so all this goes into the app together. Um, and it wasn't until field maps that we could actually just give the field workers just one app to do all that because it's always like, oh, no, sorry, guys, collector doesn't do that. We have to, we have to you know, bounce you out into server one, two, three or something like that and, you know, call you back in again and people start getting confused um but yeah pretty much if you guys release it we'll use it <laughs> <laughs> stepping away for gis for just a second you mentioned that um you use different apps to track data from your dog so could you tell our listeners about millie i'm pretty sure they would love to learn um who millie is and um how important she is in in your work millie is my is my is my nose She's a nine, oh my God, nine-year-old uh, Jack Russell Fox Terrier cross. Um, I got her as a tool, like specifically got her bred as a tool um, because we needed her for a job for a very specific rodent species. And not just that, but we needed her to find the nests of that rodent species, not the, not the actual individuals themselves, because we just couldn't figure out where they all are and keep track of them. And so we basically bred her up and trained her to take us to the nests. And that's what we were mapping was all the nests. So we get some idea of, okay, nest here, nest here, nest here. This is what they're breeding. Because that's what she was designed to do, just a tool. Um, but she's got quite a personality too. And so she sort of grew on us and we've been keep, keeping her, keep her up and doing these other jobs ever since. And now she does pretty much all, the, all four rodent species um, and she can differentiate between them as well. So wow. There's some islands that still have mice on them, which aren't bothering the ground nesting birds um, in specific situations. So she can be told before a job, avoid the mice. You're only looking for shipwrecks and Norway rats. And so if she sees a mouse, she'll just look the other way uh, and then she'll keep going looking for the rat amongst the mice. Or we go to an area where we know we're looking for mice so we can tell her, yes, you're looking for mice now. This, this is you know, nine years of constant training. She's with me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and so we sort of have this, I don't even understand it, this, this sort of connection, whereas if she makes a very subtle body movement, I can tell what it is she's thinking and hopefully vice versa, you know, I can give her commands without talking to her um, and she'll know to get in behind and, or something. Or, um, so, yeah, she, and she has to be. She has to be absolutely perfect all the time because we are 
literally walking past the most threatened, most endangered species in the world all the time. And these are big, dumb, tasty birds. Um, and so you can't just have a Jack Russell running around this environment unless they are, you know, absolutely focused. Nice. And I feel like she's useful in so many ways, but I think it's also really cool how even she is a part of this GIS data that you are collecting when you yeah. track her movements and things like that. So she even that's integrated into some of the GIS work that you're doing as well. Yeah, she's got she's got a schema that's been developed over the years. Um, and, you know, she's got like about seven fields and, you know, there's only a couple of free text, only a couple of free text fields there. Um, it's, it's got all these all these domains. So that I can really quickly go, yes, indicate ground scent, you know, medium, um, you know, what target was. And so I can just like just click through and say what it is. And then because that's just the people who are, um, you know, trying to eradicate an area or trying to see if there's something still in that area, they can see that live if I've got reception, you know, or if I get on top of the hill and press sync. Um, so the instant feedback for them is fantastic. If she does find something, um, and it's in a pest-free area, you know, we can set off alarm bells, you know, using webhooks. If, you know, it's like, I have just indicated a rat on this island, then boom, webhook goes and the, you know, the, the sirens go off. Um, we never used to have anything like that. A lot of it was like, oh, it's out there somewhere. I'll tell you when I get back to base and we'll draw it on a map or something like that. You know? So with the tools, it just makes it so much easier for us, yeah. faster as well. You mentioned mm. getting cell reception. Are these islands pretty remote when you're on them? You're working offline for the most part, I imagine. Yeah. So we always assume that you're going to be offline pretty much all day. Um, all the islands are like, well, not all the islands. There's islands. We, we do the sub-Antarctic islands as well, which is right out in the middle of nowhere. There's no cell reception out there. The Chatham Islands, where they don't even have a mobile cell tower out there. We're out there for like three weeks and you'll be you know, offline the whole time. So, you know, when you sync, when you come back, there's a lot of data. There's a lot up. of data coming all, up. All, yeah. all your tracker, all your tracker, track like three weeks of tracker, track logs. And you're like, God, I hope that sinks. Um, but for the most part, like our day in, day out type stuff, we're out on the islands off the coast off here. Um, and, you know, if you get up onto a, onto a ridge, you can pick up a couple of bars back on the mainland on one of the cell towers back on the mainland. Um, and so I'm always thinking this during my day. It's like, right, I'll go down this valley, go up here. Once I get up here, I'll sink. And so you get up there and you hold your phone up and you could have a sink. Yep, there you go. Um, and so it's really good when you're working with several handlers on an island um, or, you know, not just dog handlers, but people out there looking for plants or trying to track native birds, for example. Um, you know, if they can sync between their devices, that's great. Um, but we always make everything very, very offline friendly um, because there's, there's a very, very few jobs where you actually are in reception all the time. I think that really just shows the extent of how in the field that you are. You are in remote locations, outside, doing real field work um, and using field apps to do that work. Are there any interesting stories that you have from like the field work that you've done? <laughs> I was trying to think of stories I'm allowed to tell you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's we work by ourselves like most of the time. Um, and sometimes I think, God, if people know the stuff that we get up to out here, um, you know, because the thing is with, with the, with the, with the dog and I, like, we don't just go out there and just do a grid search of an area. Like we don't just go back and forth and back and forth and go, Island is clear. You know, it's, it's free of rats that go because we've been doing this so long. We just, and we've, you know, this is our whole life is, you know, has been out there in the field looking for rodents, basically. Um, we know where an area um you know you walk through an area and you go that feels ratty and she'll feel at the same time 
and she'll go, yeah, you're right. It does feel ratty. And we'll just beeline off for an area. And it's, we weren't planning to go out there, but you know, we'll get into an area sometimes. And then, yeah, this is a, we wanted this area once and we got a little bit uh, carried away with what we were doing. And it felt ratty. It felt like, oh, it's a rat. This is where I, there's really, there's lots of food around. There's lots of shelter. There's water. There's a whole deal. Um, and I lost track of time a little bit. And the boat was due to pick us up like in about 20 minutes. And I looked at my wife and oh, God, oh, we oh, have to no. get down there. How are we going to get back down? I'm like, we're miles away from any way we can get back down. Because, you know, I've got a few, well, actually back then, I've got collector. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at the contour lines going, we can't. We can't get out of here. We have to go right. We'll be two hours getting back down to where the boat's going to pick us up. And I looked, I said, oh, no, I reckon we can get down there. And anyway, um, we're quite famous for the fact that we carry a climbing rope and two harnesses with us when we're, <laughs> when we're out in the field. Um, and so uh, being a bit of a rock climber myself, if we need to, we can wrap off a tree um, and wrap down to a beach so the boat can pick us up. And uh, we don't usually advertise the fact, but we can get sort of anywhere we need to be. Um, we did this in this one. I said, if we wrap off this tree dog, and of course you're talking to the dog while you're doing it, um, we can get down to this ledge and then we can wrap off the tree off that ledge and wrap down one more because, you know, we, we can, we've only got a 30 meter rope, so you can have to double it over two fifteens. Um, anyway, I, long story short, I got to within the ledge with the dog with her harness on, you know, strapped into the rope, knee strapped into the rope like this. And we, it was short. We couldn't fit. We couldn't reach the ledge. Um, no. And so I'm like, oh my god, we're stuck on a cliff. We can't get down. Like, <laughs> and so, what we got? This is this is an embarrassing look. Um, and then I realised in my pouch, I carry there's a pouch on the side of my um, kit, and with the dog's lead. And the dog's lead is three meters long. I went if I clip the dog's lead onto the end of the climbing rope, we get an extra meter and a half, and I can reach the ledge. And so this is exactly what I did. We flicked the dog, and the dog's looking at me, going, "What, what is happening?" <laughs> She's got her little harness on. She's strapped Aww. in. She's like totally trusting. Anyway, <laughs> clipped on her, her lead, grabbed the end of it, slipped down another meter and a half, pendulumed across, jumped on the ledge, flicked the um, rope over again, went down to the beach, went, ah, done. And the boat, I thought, was pick us up any minute. Turns out the boat was sitting in the harbor the whole time watching us. Oh, oh just... <laughs> Weeding, and just letting you struggle. Just watching, going, what are you doing up there? Anyway, the, it turns out on the boat was the top dog, Finn. He's the boss of the conservation dogs. And I got on the boat and he said one thing to me. He said, if you needed a rope, you probably shouldn't have been up there. <laughs> hey, you made it so out anyway, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, always <laughs> I've always got Finn in the back of my mind now whenever I find myself in a situation like that. Yes. Anyway, there's a few stories like that, but that's probably the only one that uh, Finn knows about. So I don't. Like there you go. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> won't expose anything else <laughs> while you're on. And I love yeah. how you said still ratty like that. You have that sixth sense now from working in this field for so long. Like, where you think like certain locations of war, certain yes, animals are going to be. I think that's really that's really cool. Yeah, you have to like put yourself in like the mind of a rat, kind of. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Some people might think that's weird. But uh, yeah, you do, and you know some of these, yeah, you know, some of these species. You are, you know, if you are hunting a possum or a stoat of the stuff, you're thinking, how are they thinking? What are they, you know? And you get to know your targets. You've spent a lot of time in the bush. <laughs> yeah. Well, Scott, I think we are just about out of time for today. But before we let you go, is there anywhere that listeners can go if they want to learn more about your organization or some of the um, conservation efforts happening in New Zealand? Yeah, so um, we, we can get our website, I guess, um, um, ethosgis.com. 
Um, or if you wanted to have a look at what we're trying, our big goal, um, our very, very ambitious goal, which is to make um, New Zealand predator-free by 2050. Um, if you just Google um, predator-free 2050 New Zealand, um, you can see what we're doing and some of the technology we're using as well. So um, obviously we're not going to do this by just a couple of guys walking around in the forest with dogs trying to pick things off one at a time. Um, so we're looking uh, at creating some pretty cool technologies and of course, you know, incorporating GIS and that as well. Um, the, you know, we do have uh, pf2050.com, I think it's called. Um, but yeah, if you have a look at what we're doing, put it at a free 2050 New Zealand, um, you can see some of the technology we're coming up with and uh, how we're incorporating that in our everyday fieldwork. Thanks so much for talking with us today, Scott. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us and sharing all your stories. No problem. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Field Notes podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Field Notes on your favorite podcast app and join us on the next episode.